Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff with the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Welcome back to another special episode of Ohio Politics Explained with our guest, retired FBI Special Agent Jeff Williams. Williams supervised the FBI public corruption team in Columbus, as well as the House Bill 6 investigation. Take a listen to our previous episodes to hear Williams describing what it was like to arrest Larry Householder and more details about the big investigation. In this episode, Williams talks about public corruption and dark money, the 20-year prison sentence that was given to Larry Householder by a federal judge, and how and why a young FBI agent, Blaine Wetzel, turned out to be the perfect guy to be the case agent on the House Bill 6 investigation. Do you think the if and when there's another round of indictments, do you think that's going to be a small number of people? Or do you think it'd be more inclusive of you know more players, supporting actors in the in the scheme? I just don't know. Just don't know. What did you think when you heard that Judge Black sentenced uh, Larry Householder the 20 years to the maximum? I thought that Judge Black would. I thought the sentence would be near 20 years. I I I don't know if uh, if I had a a particular, you know, sentence in mind, but it didn't shock me. You know, when you look at some of the other sentences, the former mayor up in Detroit and Jimmy DeMora, the county commissioner in Cuyahoga County, those were very lengthy sentences as well. And I think one just would need to, to read the transcript of the judge's comments. And it really is uh, aligned into his thinking is, is that this was an egregious breach of trust on a massive scale. And you know, not to mention the fact that I, the judge found a particular fact that Mr. Householder had lied on the stand in, in an effort to continue to deceive the jurors, much like he had deceived Bob and Betty Buckeye, as he calls them, for, for years. And so it was not unexpected to me. What did you think of Larry Householder taking the stand? Well, again, I wasn't there, but in talking to people that were and, and following your coverage uh, and, and, and as much coverage as I could, you know, when he was on direct, it was, he is known to be a, a charismatic, well-spoken politician. And uh, there were specific points that, uh, that he, you know, may have, uh, have made that would help his case when he was on direct examination. And that is why many, many people try uh, to take the stand and testify in their own defense. And that's one of the reasons why is so they can get those points of cross. However, that all fell apart on cross-examination. It was by all accounts of many people I've spoken to just a, a masterful cross-examination point by point by Emily Gladfelder, where she had complete command of the facts and of the evidence, the timeline of events just went line by line of the point that Mr. Householder had made on, on his direct examination and cut out underneath any credibility he had uh, on cross-examination. And, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to, to the point that you asked, Jesse, when I, when I thought he was going to take the stand. Some politicians spend their career or spend an inordinate amount of time 
answering the question they wish they were asked or answering the question they want to be asked, not the hard question that they are asked, whether it's by a member of the public or a another public official on the opposing party on a competing interest, or whether it's an investigative journalist like yourself. And oftentimes those politicians can continue to dodge and evade and, and sort of answer and frame the question they would, they would like to answer the way they want to answer. You can't do that when you're on the witness stand. When you're under oath, you need to answer the question that the prosecutor poses to you. And I think we saw that time and time again, where Emily Gladfelder struck that balance of not being overbearing, being professional, and but being so effective of continuing to press Mr. Householder to answer the question. And the reason was because the answer to the question was not helpful to him. It cut through really the, the lies and the obfuscation that he presented in his direct testimony. So Assistant U.S. Attorney Emily Gladfelter was the lead prosecutor on this. She was also the lead prosecutor on the P.G. Sittenfeld case in which she won a conviction and also on the Chinese spy case, which was a big one. And yeah, I, I, I thought her um, cross-examination seemed to be a big turning point in the trial. I might be showing my bias, but my one of my favorite parts was when uh, we referenced Laura Bischoff's reporting on the uh, First Energy jet, which uh, there was a discussion about when Larry Householder paid for that jet. And it was after the reporting came out. So yeah, she did. She asked, uh, well, didn't you didn't you make that payment after it was publicized in the newspaper? And he he, he looked right at me in the front row of, of, the, of the courtroom and, and he answered, he said, no. I may, I was always intending to make that payment. You know, one of the things I, I noticed in the trial is that the defense tried to kind of uh, portray Blaine Wetzel as a young, inexperienced FBI agent who, you know, was making mistakes and he didn't know what he was doing. You worked really closely with, with Blaine Wetzel. What can you say about Agent Wetzel and, and what he brought to the case? Well, to the first point that you made, uh, he is a, a younger agent, uh, younger than me, but uh, perhaps they all... They all are uh, younger, I mean, at, at this stage of the game. He was an immensely talented investigator. So what he lacked maybe in, in years on the job, uh, he made up for with his intellect, his innate abilities with being a, a very talented investigator and being able to craft with Emily Glatzelder and the team of agents that we had on the case to craft and develop an investigative plan and successfully navigate all sorts of administrative challenges and investigative challenges to be successful. That said, too, these cases, like we talked about, are so challenging because we need to try to prove the criminal elements of bribery, regardless of the stature of the public official or what position they're in or what the matter is. But then they become so much more complicated because it's one thing if you're investigating, for example, uh, a different level of government, whether it be county or city, and understanding the inner workings of the government. And then what is the, the particular issue at hand? Uh, what, what do you need to become a subject matter expert on? And what we had with Blaine Wetzel was you almost couldn't make it up. He was a former staff member in the Michigan General Assembly. So he, had, he was well-versed in understanding state political matters in how staff members and members of the General Assembly worked, how votes were had, you know, what was dirty politics, what was illegal, what wasn't illegal, and completely understood that. And then his area of expertise that he focused on was energy policy. So a very complex issue to many, to myself included, as to 
what did decoupling mean and what was the, the basis of the Zen legislation and all of the different things that go in to this particular case and the administrative regulatory issues involving nuclear re- legislation and nuclear, the nuclear bailout, he understood um, because he had worked on that and that was an area where he was a subject matter expert. So it was really like having on the team as the lead investigator, not only a great investigator, but a subject matter expert on state legislative matters and nuclear energy policy, which made the investigation go so much smoother and be so much more productive. Do you think that um, Householder and First Energy's use of dark money is an outlier in politics? What does the case tell us about politics today? I don't think that it's it, that I'm being too speculative when I say that I think that uh, it was not an outlier. And I think that we've heard anecdotally and we have seen nationally that the use of 501c4s is highly prevalent. And for many reasons, it's attractive, obviously, because it's undisclosed and it's hidden. And I just think that I'm sure and I hope that there are many elected officials who are utilizing 501c4s appropriately and legally. But my fear is that's not the case. It's just much like in this case, the temptation is too great. It's too easy to give such large amounts of money. And those large amounts of money just have to have an influence. You know, again, you would hope that uh, people would abide by the law, and uh, you know, but really, what we're what we're faced with with the use of these five hundred one c fours is really just hoping, wishing that that people are abiding by the law because there is no disclosure. It there it, it, it is impossible for watchdog groups or investigative journalists like yourself to follow the money, which has historically been one of the best ways to sort of look at, at at issues in policy and see where there may be indications of corruption or there may be malfeasance going on. And unless you have the power of subpoena from a law enforcement agency, you're not going to be able to pierce that veil and see what's going on. So the wiretaps and the and the recordings and the money trail kind of really pulled the, the curtain back on how Larry Householder and his team operated and the scope. I mean, the, the massive scope of this case. I mean, is, is that part of an outlier or? Well, the scope of the case, the, the $60 million in bribes and the, and the $1.3 billion bailout, that certainly is something that I've, I've never seen uh, uh, that, that largesse. But the conduct, it's, you know, I could talk about cases in Baltimore with members of the Maryland General Assembly, and there's other cases that, that we've worked in Columbus involving state representatives uh, that were convicted, and it just, it never ceases to amaze us the things that people say and the conduct they engage in when they don't know that they're being recorded and you're hearing the true words come out of their mouth. Did the 2004 federal investigation of Larry Householder, uh, which did not result in charges, did that play any role in the in the House Bill 6 case in that, you know, were agents more attuned to his moves or anything or was there any connection or any any influence? No, I don't think so. The House Bill 6, obviously, it's it's this complex, massive case that you spent a lot of your career building toward and then investigating, you know, just like we said before, big money, big names, um, sweeping impact. How did it feel to have this case be the bookend for your, for your career? Like, were you, you know, particularly satisfied to, to bring it all together? Well, there's two aspects of it. And one is just sort of a, an irony, which is that 
really the first failed investigation of Larry Householder is how I came to Columbus. There was the investigation when he was the speaker, and that investigation was not successful. He was not charged. But in response to what had occurred during the course of that investigation at that time, there was this, this initiative called the Capital Cities Initiative, where there was a recognition by the FBI that many of our capital cities were where important legislative issues were going on and, and maybe corruption issues that need to be addressed, like there was with uh, the allegations against Speaker Householder when he was there the first time, that those offices were smaller and they didn't have dedicated agents oftentimes who had experience working public corruption matters. And that's sort of a theme that you've, uh, it's just a, a theme, I guess, it's a fact uh, with our country. You, know, you can go around the country and look at Florida, for example, uh, the large uh, population office of, of Miami, which has a large number of agents, but yet Tallahassee is the capital where there's a much smaller FBI presence. Same would be true of Michigan with Detroit and Lansing. And although Columbus is a much larger city than some of those, uh, very similarly, our headquarters offices in Ohio are based in Cincinnati and in Cleveland. And, and historically, Columbus was a smaller office. So, so there was this national initiative to to identify public corruption agents uh, who had experience working corruption, specifically legislative and or state political matters, which I had done in Maryland. And our local office had had been a, had asked to be a part of that initiative and get, get agents transferred here. And that is how I arrived in Columbus in 2006. So the first part of your question, it's, it's just really a bit of irony that, that the reason I came to Columbus was to work public corruption matters. And it was because of Larry Householder and what had occurred and transpired during the first investigation. And then as I retire, the last investigation that I work on involved the Larry Householder as Speaker 2.0. Why did that 2004 investigation fizzle? Well, I think there were a number of things. And we've kind of touched on this issue generally, but it was a historical allegation that had come in and it had the subjects were aware of the investigation, and it was more of a going around and, and uh, subpoenaing records after the fact and knocking on doors and asking people, for example, if they had been strong-armed or, or engaged in kickback schemes or whatever. And you know, time and time again, during the course of these investigations that we've had, and, and many of them in Columbus, especially the ones involving a couple of the other state lawmakers, when you first confront uh, the individuals, it just invariably, it didn't happen. And unless you have it on tape, unless you have audio or video evidence, it just it, it's very difficult to prove these things historically. As a retiree who can say whatever you want now, um, any message to Ohio politicians? I hope that Ohio politicians are on the up and up and doing what they should do for the great state of Ohio, which is look out for the constituents. And that's what the decisions are based on. But I'm not naive and I'm, I'm not exactly sure that even a 20 year prison sentence to Larry Householder is going to unfortunately, deter some that choose greed over, over doing what's, what's best for, for Bob and Betty Buckeye. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.